0: I'm Bonnie Lin, Director of the China Power Project and Senior Fellow for Asian Security at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. In this episode of the China Power Podcast, we are joined by Ian Johnson, Senior Fellow for China Studies at the Council on Foreign Relations. He's here to discuss his new book, Sparks, China's Underground Historians and Their Battle for the Future. The book sheds light on China's dissident journals and historians. Ian is a Pulitzer Prize-winning author and journalist who focuses on Chinese civil society and religion. He has lived more than 20 years in China as a student, journalist, and teacher. His work appears regularly in the New York Review of Books, the New York Times, and other publications. And for five years, he was on the editorial board of the Journal of Asian Studies. Ian? Thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. We're here to talk about your most recent book, but before we do that, I'd love to learn a bit more about your experience working as a journalist and correspondent in China. Would you be able to share with us what you found most interesting as as well as potentially most difficult working in China?
1: Well, I uh, first worked in China as a journalist in the 1990s. I went to China in 1994 for the Baltimore Sun, and then in 1997, I moved over to the Wall Street Journal and worked in China till 2001. That was a time when things were opening up more and more. Um, I came back around the time of the Olympics in 07, 08, as a full-time correspondent again in 09. And by then, most restrictions on journalists had had been eliminated. So it was a period in the 90s and 2000s when things were getting sort of better and better, easier and easier. In the 2010s, maybe coincidentally or not under Xi Jinping, things began to get a little more tight, especially for reporters who covered elite politics. I was From 2010 to 2020, I was accredited for the New York Times, although I was a freelancer and working on my own project, such as this book, for example. But I was accredited for the Times. And one of my colleagues, Chris Buckley, had a lot of trouble keeping his visa going because the government kept harassing him and giving him shorter and shorter visas and so on. And one could sense that things were getting more and more uh, sensitive Um, I remember in 2019, I went to Anhui province to go to that county. I can't remember the name. Oh, Uwe County, I think, where the uh, initial sort of, at least the legendary beginning of the reform era with the the farmers and so on, who made this pact to uh, farm their own land. And at the end of that, we were followed around by local officials. And you'd think this was sort of a positive place to be. but, And they sort of drove us out of the county. So things were getting tighter and tighter, and I think now it's just getting really hard to be a reporter in China.
0: And Ian, do you still travel to China or have you traveled to China since COVID? I know that has really impacted quite a bit of the uh, back and forth between the U.S. and China.
1: Yeah, so I was expelled from China in March of 2020 when, again, if you recall back in January of of that year, the Trump administration expelled 58 Chinese journalists and China retaliated by expelling roughly 15 journalists. These were all the people with US passports who were accredited for the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Washington Post and a few other media outlets. Basically, they, they, they got rid of almost everybody from those media outlets and so I was expelled but it wasn't a personal action, you know, aimed right at me. It was because of it was this tit for tat expulsions because the uh, because the U.S. government had done something similar. So I went back in May of this year as a as a fellow with CFR, where I'm now working. I did not have a journalist visa, a J visa. I had an F visa, a visitor visa, and that was not really any problem. I, I didn't go back to work as a journalist. I was going back with a think tank. and But, you know, I was, of course, talking to people. And then later, I wrote a piece for Foreign Affairs. So it, I found it was, it is possible to go back. There are a few more journalists who are being allowed back in for the US, but it's not like it was before. At the high point, I think the New York Times alone had about a dozen reporters in China, and now they just have two accredited reporters. So things have have taken a hit for sure, and our, our our understanding of China has has suffered a lot because of this.
0: Let's now turn to your book. Ian, you had mentioned that you started writing this book a while back. What motivated you to write this book, and how did you conduct the research for your book? Was it all pre-COVID, or did you also was part of your research, also part of your most recent May trip to China this year?
1: The idea for the book came in the early 2010s. Before that I had when I got back to China in the 1990s, I'd, I'd been a student in the 80s Now when I started working as a journalist in the 1990s, I was focused a lot more on grassroots stuff like I did a book called Wild Grass, which was about sort of uh, yeah grassroots protests against against various uh, problems in China. I did a book on religion in China which looked more at uh, ordinary people's religious experiences. But starting in 2010, I I did a, a launched a series of Q and A's with Chinese public intellectuals, with the New York Review of Books, and still on their website, it's called Talking About China, and now have more than 30 interviews there, and I began to talk to people about what what they saw as the pressing issues facing China. One thing that just came. over and over again, was how these people were interested in Chinese history. And many of them were writing their own versions of Chinese history. You know, a very well-known person, for example, in fact, I think the very first interview was with Yang Jisheng, the former journalist, Xinhua journalist, who wrote a classic account of the Great Famine called uh, Tombstone, which is translated into English as as Tombstone. And, And so there were more and more people began to talk about history the importance of history and i began to understand that this was a trend that was a little bit different from the past of course people in all countries in all eras of china have been interested in history it's something that humans i think is is very important to humans for sure but over the past now 20 years let's say starting around in the late 1990s or 2000s there'd been this explosion of digital technology and that had allowed people to connect with past eras of the People's Republic to read works that in the past couldn't circulate but because of pdfs and very simple basic digital technology allowed for a revival of these works and for people also to write their own histories make their own films thanks to digital cameras things that we take for granted now but which only really came up about 20-25 years ago and so I began to think this would be a really important topic and trend. And I began to just follow it throughout the 2010s, even in the Xi Jinping era, because we think of that as you know, a period of a giant surveillance state being built. But this trend continued, and I continued it on until I was expelled and in March of 2020. So it began. that was the beginning of the COVID era, and then I continued to follow it from afar, I was then of course in touch with many people and could could follow them from afar. My most recent trip was too late, by by then the manuscript had already been finished. But it was good to reconnect with people and just see that they were still active and, and still working on their projects.
0: One of the central points that you make in your book is that the past in China serves as a battleground. It's often politicized. You mentioned that successive Chinese leaders Both dynastic leaders as well as contemporary Chinese leaders have used history to legitimize their role and the Chinese state have also used it to control their own people. As you engage with these Chinese underground historians, how have they seen Chinese leaders try to control history? In particular, how do you see what the CCP is doing now as different or perhaps similar to prior Chinese leaders?
1: Yeah, we have to, again, remember that the history is a battleground in every country. And I always joke that Americans are still... Debating events that took place in this country in the Ming dynasty. So that was, and you know, what I mean by that is we're still debating the centrality of slavery to the, to the founding of the, of the United States, the introduction of slavery in 1619. And we debate things like the civil rights movement or discuss them from the 1950s and 60s. The role of, say, abortion in this country goes back to the 1970s, Roe versus Wade, these famous legal cases. So it's not unusual that history is a sensitive topic in China as well. However, I think the role of history goes beyond what we see in many countries because the Communist Party legitimizes its rule by calling on history. And essentially the message that you get, and you can see this really clearly if you go to the National Museum of China on Tiananmen Square, There's a standing exhibition there, a permanent exhibition called The Road to Rejuvenation. And the basic message there, and it's also the message you get in in practically every textbook from elementary school onward, is that China was laid low in the 19th century, especially starting, say, with the Opium Wars. This is how the story usually begins. And there were well-meaning patriots who tried to fight back and who tried to restore China's sovereignty as it was being carved up by foreign countries. But it was only the Communist Party that was able to save China. And so in this telling, history essentially determined that the party was the was the the body, the, the organization that could help China that could save China. and it's largely unblemished record over the past nearly 75 years now in in power means that the party should continue to rule China going forward. And so the party will admit to having made a few mistakes here and there, but basically they say, you know, our our rule has been great. We've led China from strength to strength, not only restoring national sovereignty after 1949, but despite a few hiccups, maybe in the Mao era, we have uh, industrialized China. We've built a powerful military. We've increased people's standards of living, et cetera, et cetera. And of course, as we all know, there's an element of truth to this. This is, of course, uh, China is much different than it was uh, you know seventy five or hundred years ago. It is much more powerful, and so on. But in doing so, they they quash any talk of of the problems, such as the great famine, where up to forty five million people died, the Cultural Revolution. And on and on, many other examples of turmoil, even in the reform era, Tiananmen, etc., etc. Or, or more recently, the ethnic clashes in Xinjiang and Tibet, and the potential mishandling of the COVID crisis. You know, early on in Wuhan, and then later in how it was lifted. You can't really talk about these things, and so people in China have tried to document this on their own using, again, these digital technologies. I think. You know, you asked, is is there any difference now from before? The difference is that we have a very strong leader under Xi Jinping who has made control of history one of his signature policies. If we think of the big domestic issues for sure that Xi has launched since taking power in 2012, there are a couple. One would be the corruption crackdown, That's probably the first thing that people would say. There's been an effort also to change the economic structure in China. But from very, very early on, he talked about the importance of history. In 2013, right after taking power, he mentioned that history was important. In fact, even in 2012, he and the Standing Committee of the Politburo went to that exhibition, The Road to Rejuvenation, and signaled this was a key issue. And he said that you cannot negate the Mao era, you can't refer to problems in the Mao era. And so it's on and on. And then this culminated in 2021 with his adoption of a history resolution that sort of rewrote CCP history over the past 75 years. So I think what we're seeing now is a renewed commitment to the control of history. And I would say one of the reasons for that is that In the 2000s, the party felt that its version of history was being challenged by citizen historians, the kind of people I write about in my book.
0: Ian, you mentioned that Xi Jinping has made history one of his signature policies. Is it fair to say that Xi places more importance on the control of history than his predecessor, Hu Jintao, or any of the more recent Chinese leaders since Mao?
1: No, I think that to to some degree, that's true. I think Mao also put a huge premium on the control of history. He passed the first resolution on party history, something I described in my book. And then Deng Xiaoping also, after the Cultural Revolution, passed the second resolution on party history. And these resolutions are basically guidelines for how people throughout china and this includes people who make exhibitions who make films who write textbooks who write the local histories of the counties of the provinces of the cities in china you know there's there's an entire network of people who write these gazetteers and so on these are guidelines for how they should approach historical sensitive historical issues in china so xi jinping for the first time since the last resolution in 1981, he wrote this or presided over this new resolution in 2021, and has made this, again, a signature issue. I think one of the things that really worries him, because you can see this again in speech after speech that he's made, is the fall of the Soviet Union in 1990, 1991. He saw this as a failure of the elites in the Soviet Union to buy into their party's history. And that Gorbachev went too far with Glasnost and Perestroika and allowed alternative versions of history to rise up. And there was, you know, very famous organizations in the Soviet era like Memorial, which I think won a Nobel Peace Prize later and many other people like Solzhenitsyn and so on, very famous dissidents who challenged the the, CC, the, the USSR's history, he saw this as, as one of the key reasons for hollowing out the ideological framework that led even cadres in the system to believe in the system. And he didn't want this to happen. He said, we have to believe in our history. And so he doubled down on all of these um, stories and, and and over the 2010s, the, for example, the internet regulatory body in China issued a whole series of things that you cannot discuss or you cannot challenge online if you're, you know, on WeChat or writing an article or something like that, and, and made it even more and more explicit over the past 10 years about what can and cannot be discussed.
0: And that links to what you were saying earlier, Ian, about how even as a journalist yourself, you experienced the 2010s or at least the early 2000s and parts of the 2010s as a period where it was much more open and much more free. And perhaps to someone like Xi Jinping, this greater freedom was a challenge to his belief in the supremacy of the party as well as the party's control.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I think what they, they saw happening was that the pendulum had swung too far in the 1990s and especially the 2000s, and that she was essentially brought in to rein in challenges in the, the, the party saw as challenges to its authority. You know, if you were observing China or in China in the 2000s, it was a really amazing time when the media, the Chinese media... Had a lot more leeway to report on problems in China. They could report on corruption. You know, there were limitations, of course, but you could bring up all kinds of problems in in, in Chinese society. You know, one of the, the signature turning points in 2003: the case of Sun Gong, who was a, a young migrant worker who was beaten to death in police custody. Because he didn't have the right papers on him, this led to a revision of Chinese residency requirements or laws on, on, on paperwork that people had to carry with them. And this was all reported in the media. It was it was essentially a scoops that various media outlets came up with. And they, they did investigative reporting. I think the, and we maybe at the time thought, well, this is great. This is an amazing time. There were blogs that were coming up. The Internet wasn't really under control yet. So Weibo was sort of analogous to Twitter in Western countries, was kind of a free-for-all where there were all kinds of people, influencers, and so on and so forth. And even in the Hu Jintao era, in the later Hu Jintao era, this began to be reined in. And I think you can, if you want a turning point, maybe it was in 08 after the Summer Olympics were held in Beijing, maybe a a symbolic act might have been the detention of the future Nobel Peace Prize winner Liu Xiaobo in late 08 after Charter 08 was released, his imprisonment. You know, in 2010, they began to reign in Weibo and so on and so forth. And so when Xi Jinping, he he comes in in 2012. He's part of this trend that the party has already launched. But he just being a more forceful leader with more levers of control than, say, Hu Jintao has, he's able to supercharge this this crackdown further.
0: And this relates to some of the main content of your book, which talks about China's underground historians or or. I guess how you describe them as Jianghu historians, those that challenge the official Chinese government narrative or version of history. It seems to me at least they were they could might have been quite powerful up until 2008. But how have they operated since then? And how do you see their ability to influence the Chinese government now?
1: Yeah, they were more in the public sphere. They had more platforms. There were independent documentary film festivals that were held in China up until the early 2010s. I think one of the points that I make in this, I want to make in this book at least, is that these people are still active. They're still doing things in China. They do not have the same public platform that they had before, but they are still Uh, at it. They're still making films. They're still writing books. One of the journals that I profile, Remembrance, GE, this journal is still publishing every two weeks along, you know, like 120, 150, well, it's just roughly 100 page journal on Chinese history made by primarily Chinese historians inside China today. And this is similar in a way to the Zamizdat movement in the Soviet Union where things were were circulated more surreptitiously in society. Um, you don't have the ability to go on social media and spread this. But by using, again, the simple digital technologies like PDFs, like email, um, or even just thumb drives where you hand a movie or something over to somebody else, you still have a spreading of ideas. And this does not directly impact the government except to make i think Xi Jinping want to crack down even further hence he had this part this resolution in 2021 etc but i think sometimes when we're looking at the creation of social movements where we're sometimes too focused on the street protests the big showy things that challenge governments and we sometimes i think have to look earlier to the earlier phase of of social movements when ideas spread. And I think by taking a longer historical perspective, say 25 years, what I'm trying to show is that there has been a fundamental change in how public intellectuals and thinking people in society understand their history. There is a, a more of a Uh, There's a much greater understanding of all of the failings of the CCP, of the famine, et cetera, et cetera. It's not so hard to get this information anymore because of the work of these um, unofficial historians, underground historians, whatever you want to call them, in China. You know, it used to be in the 1990s or, or earlier, especially in the 1980s, let's say, 90s, there were, you know, just a handful of people, you know, maybe a few hundred people in China, a few intellectuals in, in a few big cities kind of knew the full scope of the problems over the past 75 years of, of CCP rule. That's changed. I mean, now you can you can find people in all kinds of small towns and cities who are interested in this. I think this has um, created a. This is what I would. This is what I argue in the book, in the, in a chapter called "The Fi- The Limits of Amnesia." I challenge the idea that amnesia has won, has triumphed, and and is dominant in China. And it's true that you know most people don't know stuff, but that's probably true in any society, right? If you ask young Americans to find China on a map or even the United States on a map, they can't and stuff like that. But it doesn't mean that. A lot of people don't in, – in China, it doesn't mean that a lot of people aren't aware of, say, Tiananmen. Sure, if you go to a campus – I mean, sometimes foreign journalists will do that. They'll go to Beida, Peking University with a picture of Tank Man and say, do you know who this is? And most people, even if they can you know, answer honestly, they'll say, I don't know who that person is, right? But that doesn't mean that there aren't a significant number of people who aren't aware of stuff. And this is because of a variety of reasons, because of, I, th- I think, of this slow – spread of information at a lower, less kind of visible way than social media. And also because there are a lot of people in China today who do have VPNs, virtual private networks, which allow you to, if you're inside China, to jump over the firewall and look at stuff that's banned. And we know that there are millions and millions of Chinese who regularly use VPNs. The numbers are inconclusive. But even if it's only 1% of the population, we're still still talking more than 10 million people. So I think that there are a significant number of people who are aware of this today. And this is important in the long term, I think, for China, but it does not have an immediate impact on the government.
0: Ian, I was really interested in what you mentioned in terms of taking a longer view of history. And when you mentioned that maybe it, it might take 25 years or more to be able to see the impact of some of these... Uh, historians and the impact of their work. are you seeing any evidence that for example, histories documented or films created by these underground historians have led to change, whether that's in the form of leading to social movement or led to change in the form of changes in China's government policy?
1: yeah, it's an interesting question you know when when will this have an impact? when will it affect the China that we see and deal with? in the world today and you know if you want to be honest about it i think that the china that we see that we deal with over as overseas and in foreign policy it's going to remain largely the same for the foreseeable future so i don't see any major change sometimes people say is this analogous to the 1980s and the soviet union or some of these groups like that organization that i mentioned earlier memorial that helped hollow out the soviet system and 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 led to Gorbachev to 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 adopt policies like glasnost and perestroika and so on and so forth. I think it's too early in the process. If you want to make an analogy to the Soviet Union and we have to make these kinds of analogies with a you know very carefully and and, and in a very limited way, but it's much more like the 1960s Soviet Union where some of these people were becoming more prominent were doing work like Solzhenitsyn et cetera. But the Soviet Union was still strong and powerful, and certainly abroad, it looked like a giant menace. We have to also, on top of that, realize that China is a strong economic country, unlike the Soviet Union, which had certain areas that were strong, like heavy industry and weapons and so on. China is really an economic superpower, you know, whether it's falls into the mid-income trap or whether it ever overtakes the United States. These are separate questions, but it is a much stronger economy, say, than the Soviet Union was. So we can't really look at analogies in history and see a direct correlation, but it's still, I would say it's still years away. But, you know, if you want to look at what could be a precursor About a year ago, coming up on a year ago, there were protests against the COVID policies. Um, These were sometimes called the white paper protests because people held up blank sheets of paper, white paper, because they didn't dare write anything on it. So it's to show that they were kind of censored. And there were, you know, hundreds, maybe a few thousand young people in a few Chinese cities who engaged in these protests. And throughout the COVID lockdowns, There were people, and especially, again, about a year ago, there were people who were posting from China onto foreign media sites that are blocked in China, like Twitter and YouTube, pictures of protests and evidence of the hardship of the lockdowns and et cetera, et cetera. And there was real unhappiness and unrest in China. And I think part of this was, indeed, the draconian lockdowns, which had kind of run their course and were no longer serving any purpose, but which the government clung to until the end of 2022. But part of it was probably also the economic slowdown that we're seeing in China today, the high youth unemployment. We've seen over the past few years terms that youth adopt such as lying flat and, you know, it's kind of like dropping out of society, running away, run stray or something like trying to get out of China. And I think that if you think that China is in for a period of long term economic slowdown, then we could see more protests like this in the future. In these protests that took place a year ago, some of the people that I write about in the book came to the fore, and their accounts of the past in China were. Very prominent on social media, such as the journalist Zhang Xue. I write about, she's one of the two main characters in the book. Even essays by people in the Cultural Revolution, like Yu Ke, their stuff was sort of repackaged. And the way you can do it on WeChat, you know, when you write, you make a little article and then you can have your own little blog on, on, uh, and then they get recirculated and so on. And sometimes they get banned and they get recirculated again and again. And so I think these things came up because there was a lot of frustration in society. And I think these people came to the fore because of that. And if we imagine that or if we if we anticipate that China is going to go through some kind of a longer term economic slowdown because of the policies that they're pursuing and also because of demographic issues, et cetera, then that could be an opening for these people to become more influential in the future.
0: Can you share a little bit more information about the demographics of the underground historians? Are they mainly folks who are in their mid or late years? Or do you see, for example, younger people, including some of the youth that are unemployed now, being much more interested in these types of alternative history?
1: I think many of the people who are active get interested because of something that happened to them personally. This is quite common in our own lives. Something happens to us and then we decide to pursue that. And so, we, you know, you find people who, let's say they went through the Cultural Revolution. They were sent down as youths to some remote part of the country. And this triggered an interest in the history of the Cultural Revolution. So one of the people I profile in the book is the founder of the of the journal uh, Remembrance that I mentioned earlier. And he had been sent down to Inner Mongolia, where he learned all about Inner Mongolian and Mongolian history and the suppression of, of ethnic groups there. And so he, that became his life's work. And that was because of something that had happened to him, and now he's in his 70s. And so that person's experiences. But if you look at some of the people who went to Wuhan in 2020, they were younger people, for sure, people in their 30s and 40s like Zhang Zhan, the video historian who is uh, still in jail and who made many firsthand video blogs about her experiences there, because for them it was, this was like a giant thing affecting their country. They wanted to understand it better. The government wasn't providing any answers. So they just got in a car and they drove, or got a train actually, I think, and, and went to Wuhan. And then you can see also an interesting thing there, because she she's in in her 30s. And she goes to Wuhan, and the first person she links up with, uh, she spends her first night with another person I wrote about in the book, Ai Xiao Ming. She's about seventy years old, in her late sixties. And so there is a sort of a definite knowledge among each, among these people, of who's doing this kind of work. I don't want to say it's a it's a movement in any organized way, because it certainly isn't that. But people are certainly aware of each other and help out each other and give them tips and, and pointers and stuff like that. So you get younger people who are involved in this too. And and I I think at the beginning of this year, in January, Zhang Shui, this journalist I mentioned, she wrote one of her most popular posts all about the, the young people. And she made a very interesting quote where she she cited Vaclav Havel, and in 1990, Vaclav Havel made a speech called "About the Young People," and he said, "Who are the young people who grew up in what was then Czechoslovakia and didn't know anything except communism? They were they had grown up, they spent their whole life under communism, but they were at the forefront of these movements in Czechoslovak history, such as Prague." The Prague spring in 68, and even then 20 years later, at the end of the Cold War of communism in, in their country, they stood up again. Who were these people? Because they didn't know anything. They'd grown up in brainwash, you know, supposedly brainwashed, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And so Zhang Shui wrote this an article where she cites Havel and said, by the same token, who are these people who are young, who should, by all accounts, have only read CCP history at school, have experienced only a censored internet. How did they have this? Ability to question the system. And so she writes sort of with wonderment and amazement because she's in her forties. So she's a little bit older than the people in the white protests, in the white paper protests. But there does seem to be something where people, as they experience things, they're just drawn and, and, and there's this native, native sort of human, innate human curiosity. To explore your life and and to make sense of your environment, and I think it does. So it does draw on young people to answer your question directly.
0: Thank you. It's interesting to hear which types of people are drawn to these histories, and to hear the networking between the older and younger generations. Two of the most prominent historians in your book are Ai Xiaoming and Jiang Xue. Why did you choose to spotlight the two of them?
1: Well, I. Over the course of writing the book, I I interviewed scores and scores of people. And when I was putting together the book, I wanted it to have, I didn't want it to be just a a series of profiles of people, you know, where chapter two is on this person, chapter three is on somebody else, and chapter four is on yet another person. I wanted to have a sort of a through story uh, where you have people who take you and pull you hopefully through the book from the beginning to the end. And I thought their life trajectories were a little bit different. They were two different generations. Ai Xiaoming is a bit older. I believe she was born in 1953. And so she represents the sort of cultural revolution generation of people who got involved. She also makes documentary films, which is an important segment of, of, of these people. Uh, Zhang Xie is a little bit younger. She was uh, born 20 years later, roughly, I think 74. And she writes. and, and, And so, she's writing articles and longer form magazine pieces and stuff like that. They also both worked in different parts of the country because this book is also about sort of the geography of memory. And I start the book in China's Northwest and I move from this periphery where the party also has its early years into the heartland of China and then to the extremities of China, if you will, like Hong Kong, etc., and then out abroad. And these people were also, Ai Xiaoming and Zhang Shui also represent that. Ai Xiaoming did a fantastic Documentary, which is about six hours long, on the Jablengou labor camp, which is one of the most notorious Mao-era labor camps, and a uh, you know, hugely ambitious work. And also out in the west, Jiangshui wrote about. She's from the. She's from the northwest. She's from Tianshui in Gansu province. She wrote about this magazine, which from which my book gets its name. The magazine was founded in 1960. It's called Spark. And she wrote the history of that movement uh, of that and that magazine, so that these people allowed me to then move from that part of China and from that era of China into the into the present as well, because they're all active. both of them are active today and and are doing contemporary issues as well.
0: Thank you. in the interest of time, I probably will have to wrap this up relatively soon. I do want to go back to a topic that you mentioned earlier which is uh, how do you view the importance of these underground historians? To what extent they have impact in shaping the trajectory of China? And what does that mean as we look at US-China relations? One of the parts of the book and near your conclusion, you mentioned that there's a prevailing view in the West that China is a hopeless authoritarian. But you seem much more optimistic in your book and in your conclusion. I just wanted to make sure I left time for you to share your perspective on how to understand uh, the phenomenon of these underground historians who are still very much trying to fight to control the narrative and to control the understanding of history on China and how we sitting in the United States understand U.S.-China Relations and should think about how China could evolve in the future?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think the, I guess there's a couple of, two, two main reasons why these people matter. One is something that kind of ticked me off when I started to think about this was how in the 1970s and, and 80s, maybe the 60s also, people like Solzhenitsyn, Kundera, Havel, uh, were household names in, among educated people in the West. You know, people knew who Solzhenitsyn was. They'd read the Gulag Archipelago. They'd read other works of his. And in the 70s and 80s, people knew who Kundera was, et cetera, et cetera. They knew who Milos Forman, the filmmaker, was. But I don't think a lot of people in the West really know any of these people in China and there are people like this in China and I guess one of my the points of my book is just to make clear that China has similar people today who are doing very similar work you know when a filmmaker like Ai Xiaoming makes a 400 minute documentary film on a labor camp in China. This is a really ambitious work. I mean, I'm not saying everybody should go out and, and immediately see the film, although you can find it on YouTube very easily. But it's a it's a really ambitious. It's a serious work. These are works similar to Klaus Landsmann's Showa. They deserve to be taken seriously, and they should be. We should be more aware of them, and not just sort of write off China in an easy, sort of sloppy way of saying, ah, it's the surveillance states one. There's nothing going on over there. Let's just write it off and just figure ways to contain China. I mean, sure, I'm I'm not going to get into the whole debate about how we should deal with China, what policies, et cetera, are necessary, export controls or whatever. But I think if we want to think of how to deal with China, we should, and we often wonder who our interlocutors should be. And I guess this is the second point. These are people who we should know better. These are people who we should talk to more. And especially outside of government, but in the Western civil society, like universities, think tanks, film festivals, it sort of floors me that a filmmaker like Hu Jie, who's made amazing films, he's made three absolutely classic, breathtaking films on China. And they're not too hard. They're like, you know, two hours each. They're, they're, they're totally accessible that he hasn't had a major retrospective at big film festivals. You know, you kind of wonder like why not, right? And 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 the, these are the kinds of things that we could and we should be doing. Part of it, I go into the, in the conclusion, there are reasons for this. Language is an issue. A lot of these people don't speak English. It's going to be hard to bring them over for fellowships or, or to be guest lecturers at universities and stuff like that. But we should make more of an effort. We hardly translate their works at all. There are a few of these classic works, like by Yang Jisheng, I mentioned, um, at the beginning of the show, Tombstone, but there aren't, that has been translated. I, and only because they were subsidized by, by a, a foundation. And also Tan Ho Chung, who I mentioned in the book, that book of his call, it's translated as The Killing Wind. That's been translated, but most of it hasn't. And I think we should try to become more aware of this work and we should engage with these people and try to, um, you know, if we want to, make China interesting also to young people. It's it's sort of shocking how few people nowadays study Chinese. And I think it's often because we make it seem like there's nothing positive going on in China at all. And of course, from in terms of the Chinese government, that may be true. But on a civil society grassroots level, that's not true. And there are people who are still doing things and we deserve, we should know who they are. And that's one of the uh, takeaways perhaps of this book.
0: Thank you, Ian. One final question. You mentioned the importance and the need to engage with these underground historians. Are they also willing to engage us? Would engaging with Western intellectuals put them at risk and under potential greater PRC scrutiny or pressure? How should we navigate this balance? Well, I
1: think we have to, of course, ask them. To, and if they don't want to come over for a fellowship or to be in a film festival or whatever, then, then that's okay. That's, that's their right. I'm sure many of the people I've talked to, they were all thrilled that someone was writing about this because they kind of. Th- thought that they're, they are they often feel forgotten, right? That they, they have no outlet and it's very hard for them to, to have an outlet in China. And so I think they would be willing to. Some people face real issues. For example, Ai Xiaoming is not able to leave China. She was told by the Public Security Bureau recently that she cannot leave until 2032, which is a really specific time. Maybe that's when she's going to be 80 years old or something like that. So there are, they, there are challenges to that, right? But we could do virtual events with them or we can, there are other people who can leave China and, and if, and they can uh, talk and, and so on and, and, and come abroad. I think they'd be happy to. I mean, it's very, it's a real challenge also for, for these books to be translated, there's a young, very, very good nonfiction journalist named uh, Yuan Ling, and his book on children in China, he calls them the silent children. It's a great book. And and that book is going is being translated right now. I, I can't remember the name of the press. I think it's the New Press. Those are the sorts of things that are happening, but just not enough of that. And I think that we should just talk to the people and see what they want to do. You know? And if they say, no, I can't talk, I'll get in trouble, then just like when i'm doing my research then that's uh, i'm not going to pursue it anymore or i'll i'll leave them anonymous but uh, i don't think we'll be hurting anyone i think i think in general the worst the thing that people fear the most is being forgotten when you're in an authoritarian system it's that nobody cares about you that you think you're completely crazy and alone in the world and then to have somebody from the outside world say hey we value your work we want to celebrate it a little bit i think people would just be very happy about that
0: Great. Thank you very much, Ian, for this fascinating discussion. And to your point and your recommendation, we should all pay more attention to what these underground historians are writing, as well as filming and making, in terms of their understanding and interpretation of what's happening in China, both now as well as in the recent past. So thank you again, Ian, for joining us.
1: Thank you very much for having me on.